Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Kathleen Lowry, an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. In 2020, she was dismissed from an administrative post as undergraduate programs chair in her department after student complaints about her expressed opposition to gender identity ideology and her criticism of trans activism came to the fore. Her first book based on her research with indigenous communities in Bolivia and Paraguay entitled Shamanism and Vulnerability on the North and South American Great Plains was published last year by the University Press of Colorado. She is currently at work on a new book about the anthropology of women. I welcome Kathleen Lowry to Savage Minds. I find it interesting that you were dismissed from an administrative post as undergraduate programs chair in your department because students, and we can read this also in Canada, even though less expensive, they are clients of the system and they could complain about your bad behavior. So we're being checkboxed, and I'm sure you noticed in Canada the augmenting importance of student evaluations. So when I got to the University of Montreal, I was told, just be easy, you'll get high evaluations, you'll get tenure. That was some advice I was given. This is all very maddening because I'm seeing the problems here of not just their youth and the world they're growing up in since 9-11 or since the 90s even, I see there's a problem of capitalism here where these kids don't have a rat's chance in hell of surviving this job market because there are no jobs. Even when I was teaching at NYU in the 90s, I had students finishing that their best job offer was being a barista some years. There were no real jobs that they wanted that they could have and what they had in their mind would be a viable job. And they were getting jobs that they could have had had they never been to university, never gotten into debt, and we all know how much NYU costs. So I see this as part of a problem, the way that this generation, because this narrative of trans activism is being pushed massively by the middle and upper middle classes. These are people who don't want to be elbowed out of jobs, who want a place on that ladder, and they're creating a new niche job market. I, I think, no, I, I, th I think that's really true. I wanted to go back, I, I'll, I'll circle back around it. I wanted to go back to the Kathleen Stock thing. You know, I, I listened to your interview with Julia Long, which I think is terrific and I, I really liked it. And I, I appreciate Julia Long so much. And I, you know, I, I don't want to criticize Kathleen Stock because I feel like she's, she's in the crap with the rest of us, but I, I have, oh yeah it has worried me that one of the things you'll often hear about her is it's very unfair for her to be attacked because she goes out of her way to be polite and she goes out of her way to use preferred pronouns. And I think to the, that, that puts those of us like Julia Long who are less, I mean, that th th this idea of like, oh, but no one should attack Kathleen Stock because she's super nice about trans activism. I think, well, okay, if, if that's the defense of Kathleen Stock, um, what happens to the rest of us? Because I think the real defense of Kathleen Stock is, well, come on, biological sex does exist. <laughs> like this whole discussion is so ridiculous. And it's actually, I think there are aspects of the discussion that are, if, if the boundaries of the discussion have to be like, oh, you can only be polite, there are things that, that that makes it impossible to discuss. I don't think that there is a polite way to discuss um, the incredible physical harm 
done to children who are put on Lupron at a young age, which, which erodes their bone density, the, the surgeries that are done on very, you can't discuss those things politely and you can't discuss autogynephilia and, and the degree to which the most vociferous trans adult male trans activists are overwhelmingly these high testosterone, super macho guys who have a fetish and you, there's no polite way to say that. So if the balance, if we have to, if we have to maintain this discussion entirely with the bounds within the bounds of politeness and the only, the only academics we should listen to are, or the defense of Kathleen Stock is like, oh, she shouldn't be subjected to anything because she's always super polite. Um, that leaves, I mean, Sheila Jeffries is now emeritus, but that leaves somebody like Sheila Jeffries entirely out in the cold. I, I, I mean, I haven't done the, the kind of publishing that Kathleen Stock or Sheila Jeffries have done, but it would leave me out in the cold because I'm certainly in the camp of people who are much less polite about, you know, because I'm, 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 I think we really need to name the degree of aggressive male entitlement that that is in by the harm that's being done to children anyway. No, I agree. And I think it's important also that when women start saying things like, and I've seen this in many of the groups I'm in, well, some women have been traumatized by rape. And my bottom line is that shouldn't be on the table. What should be on the table is that we have the right to sex-based separate spaces. And it doesn't, we don't have to have the litmus test, have you, or have you not been raped? That shouldn't even be a concern, and it shouldn't even have to be public information, frankly, that's private. I am, like you, appalled that this movement has been harboring, and we're finding out much more since the Y Spa incident about that guy, even if he wasn't a pedophile or a rapist or a sexual predator of any sort, the reality is, and this is why I don't understand the exceptionalism that some women maintain when they say, but I have a lot of trans friends. Well, look, I have a lot of male friends. They could be even straight male friends. I don't tell them to come into the loo with me and I tell all the women in there, he good, he's good, he's with me. No, we don't right. live our lives like this. We live our lives because of rape, who it happens to and who affects it, that there is a recognition that men do not come in our loose. And that includes men in dresses, that includes men with pink hair, it includes men with non-symmetrical haircuts. Right. And I, I also think it's, it's amazing how there's no discourse of why is it women who have to, because it is true that if you're a, a man who dresses in a non-stereotypical way, other men will, will sometimes beat you up. And, and that's a terrible problem. But why is, don't export it to women. Why are we not exhorting men? Like you, you all need to be kind, like you guys be inclusive. You make your bathrooms inclusive. You make your bathrooms safe spaces for men in dresses. And, and I, the degree to which this is, this is just constant exhortations to women to like be kinder, be more inclusive, be more this, be more that. And there are no lectures directed at men where I feel like the whole, the whole issue of um, men who don't conform to sexual stereotypes, who don't conform to sexual stereotypes it, it, there is a problem, there is a terrible problem with violence against them, that it's not violence committed by women, it's violence committed by men. So we should have a massive campaign that's hammering on men. Hey, be nice to each other in your bathrooms and changing rooms. 
prisons should be safe for all men, no matter how they express themselves. I mean, this, this, all of this conversation could be had with, with men as the focus of it. And instead, this entire conversation is being had with women. It's, it's, it's just, it's so, it's just the most old fashioned, ridiculous sexism. And the fact that so many people cannot see it for, for what it is, is so discouraging. So, but I wanted, I then wanted to, though you made these interesting points about, um, you know, the, the lack of jobs for students, the, the, the sort of weird, I mean, it's another one of these strange pairings, sort of like the pairing of we're becoming more and more and more virtuous within the West. And yet outside the West, we're like just bombing the crap out of people. Absolutely. There's, you know, universities are more and more and more accommodating more and more. Oh, you can't, you can't demand too much. Like if student, like if students need accommodations for this and that you, you have to, you have to be as what did they, the word they use for it during the pandemic is, is they was like radical compassion. We were all supposed to practice radical compassion towards our students. And, and it's interesting that the university is becoming increasingly this space of, of, I, I mean, I, I think just like the, I think again, it's a very false rhetoric, but it's this false rhetoric of, oh, we're the most supportive, most wonderful, most accommodating, most inclusive space possible. And the minute you step out of the doors, you're, you're going to be walking into this um, totally heartless economic situation that has no job for you. Mm-hmm. That, um, so, so there's again, this, this sort of fakeness that we're never, we never discuss that within the university, right? We discuss everybody's gender identities. We discuss what kind of disability accommodations they might need. We discuss um indigenization we we discuss anti-black racism we discuss all of those things the fact that these young people are facing an economy that gives them no purchase and has no place for many of them that, like we would never discuss that or or these i have i have friends who um said my kid goes to public school but i've friends who send their kids in other cities to very Tony private academies. And they have all these sharing circles about ethnicity and gender and race. And the one thing they never have a sharing circle about is like, let's go around the sharing circle and say what everybody's household income is. Um, no, nobody wants to have a public discussion of, of that. So there's, oh, there's so many varieties of bad faith simultaneously at play. So yeah, the, the, the student, I mean, I don't think student evaluations, I think there's reasons to have them, right? You don't want professors to, to abuse their power. But I think the, all the rhetoric of, of, oh, you know, the customer is always right, kind of, it's, it's not, um, I think in the end, it's actually not doing anything for for students. It's certainly not preparing them for the the brutal realities of today's job market. And that doesn't mean I think we should be brutal to them. And because haha, the world is going to be brutal to you. But I I do think there's um there's something really uh 
duplicitous about it, that that the university kind of trains them to think that the world works in or to have certain expectations that are that are and and I think the point you made about the creation of new safe births for elite classes. I mean, I I, I mentioned in an email. Um, there's a guy named Malcolm Cheyune. He's a Swedish kind of ex-Marxist. Um, he's done some really interesting writing about this. He's definitely not. He's he's not. He's in some respects explicitly anti-feminist, although he's because he's a he's just sensible. He's really good on, you know, he recognizes that the whole rhetoric of sex work is work is a bunch of crap. Um, but he's he's done some really good writing on how all of this stuff that doesn't talk about class is a form of class struggle. So all these all these sort of sort of carve outs or set asides are actually, they totally only benefit elites. And they're certainly the, the elite classes are becoming more multiracial, more kind of, there's all kinds of gender identities and, and forms of sexual orientation in the elite classes. But, and also Adolf Reed has, he's an, he's a, he's another, he's actually. Oh, he's gotten fried on this, right? Over. But he's, but he's terrific on it because he said, you know, this rhetoric that, that keeps the kind of, as long as the elite is like, you know, 13% black and whatever percent gay and whatever percent trans, the fact that the massive split is between a tiny elite and an immiserated mass, it's as if that doesn't matter. It's like, well, as long as the elite class is, is multiracial, um, multi-sexuality, multi-gender identity, then, then like we're done. We've solved all the problems. We can go home as soon as we've accomplished that. And, and it's another one of these duplicitous pairings that on the one hand, you have this rhetoric of like, we have to have a perfectly... I don't know that one of the big things on Twitter among academics now is they, what do they call it? They call it like citational justice. <laughs> and it's, it's that you have to cite, you have to be citing people of cult color and women and trans people. And yeah, I mean, you're laughing because it's like, what the fuck is that going to do for um, class? I mean, there's just this whole rhetoric that the more you can kind of spin like, oh, we've achieved perfect citational justice. Oh my God, are like children still dying of, I don't know, preventable disease. Oh, well, and, you know, and it's just, it's so fucking ludicrous. And, and I, I feel like it was not, honestly, it wasn't this bad 20 years ago. I'm, I, I do think there were academics who who were who were sharper about this kind of stuff and and able and able and willing to discuss this kind of stuff more. So I don't. What has happened to the left? What has happened to feminism? What has happened happened to academia? It's it's very discouraging. I I completely agree. I was uh, aloof to a lot of it because I'd been asked to teach queer theory at NYU. I had taught queer theory at the University of Montreal, but I did it as a an approach. I didn't offer this as this is a religious orthodoxy, which you must equip yourself and head out into the wilderness with. This was never, <laughs> I mean, this has become like a survivor's metaphor. pack. Yeah, but it's insane. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I taught 
the theories with a critical eye to what was actually happening because all it takes is to read Butler's first two books and you've got an argument right there between her first two books. In her first book, Gender Trouble, it's performativity that matters. Suddenly, she shifts over to bodies mattering. It's quite an interesting shift, but it's a radical shift. It's, it's almost like did the same person write these two books? On top of the first one being incomprehensible, I had graduate students who would beg me, do we have to read the whole thing? And I said, <laughs> read what you can and uh -huh. you know, say 10 Hail Marys. So I just found that I do have problems a lot with the, the gender critical movements. Uh, very bad reading of Foucault, I'm sorry. I don't, <laughs> Foucault was an inspiration to certain issues in certain books, but he did not at all advocate that people get rubber stamped by doctors, clinicians, states, governments, no. And I have a problem with that. I have huge problems with the Pluckrose Lindsay book. I don't think this at all gives an honest rendering of what's gone on. I think there's a lot of, I know when I did my PhD and I had to apply for grants so that I could spend time between Latin America and North Africa researching and writing, I knew one thing, Kathleen, I had to write gender somewhere in my application or some other niche word. And I got the funding. I got a lot of funding. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there was a very handsome reward for playing into that language. And we were told this. When you write grants, at least in CUNY in the 90s, you would be asked to attend a seminar. There'd be some bureaucrat who would say, these are good things to do. This will help you get the grant. I was paying attention. Now, I happened to write on gender. My first book, my dissertation, which is a book, my first book, was uh, a critique of Butler. It was a critique of Butler through some really interesting writers, uh, Roland Barthes and uh, Abdelkabir Khatibi and Severo Sardoui. Uh, Sardoui being from Cuba, Khatibi being from Morocco, and their work historically was Roland Barthes. But What's interesting is that if you go back to D.A. Miller's work on Roland Barthes, or even the book he co-published with his criticism of Barthes and Sidon, it's really interesting to see how homophobia was at the core of queer studies in the 90s. It was about expressing homosexual desire. Yves Zukowski Sedgwick as well. Her book was not about people becoming transgender, not at all. Her book, Epistemology of the Closet, was about evidencing that skeleton that had long been buried past uh, of Walt Whitman's homosexuality, you name it. It was about let's celebrate these homosexual writers or homosexual filmmakers because there was a whole school of people that came up then in the 90s doing their own thing. So we had Marlon Riggs, you know, Black is Bla Black Ain, a brilliant film about gay black desire, gay black desire in cinema. We had you know, Vito Russi, Celluloid Closet, <laughs> as film. Well, I think, no, I think you're right that I've often thought, I mean, I haven't, I have to admit, I actually haven't read. Um, the only thing I've read by Judith Butler is there was this really interesting, it was called the Butler-Fraser debates. So I haven't read her books. I've, I've read the Butler-Fraser debates, which are, um, I think it was published in Critical Inquiry or something in the That's right. 90s. They were, they were quite interesting, but you know, she's, I think this interesting, more interesting that she's given credit for a transitional figure because She's now kind of the, 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 the boogeyman of gender identity ideology, but in terms of the imperialism stuff, she's actually always been pretty good on that stuff, right? She's, you know, she's protested war. She's, she's been really good on Israel-Palestine. So she's actually been, I think, 
Um, and I, I, I think some of this stuff was more, more intellectually interesting and more playful and more, um, you know, some, I've, I've read, I've read a bit of Bart, I've read, but, but I think some of the stuff had more intellectually interesting stuff going on. And now it's sort of ossified into something that is just ludicrous. And I, I think part of that ossification, that ludicrousness is, is with the Judith Butler, the people who, who think of themselves as, and, and that unfortunately, you know, to her discredit that she's really sort of accepted them as her, as her heirs and legatees and really embraces the whole like, oh, turfs are terrible, which is just, yeah. I mean, sad to see because I think, you know what, I actually, she gets a lot of criticism for like, oh, she's such an idiot and she's just a faker. But I think she's actually not a stupid woman. So I think, I don't know why you've done what you've done. I think because what's become disattached is the, is the trans, the real um, sort of trans ideologues they don't give two shits about Afghanistan or I mean they they don't think about the world outside their belly button for more than a millisecond the fact that a that a whole world exists or to the extent that they do they do it in this way that it's 100% imperialist where any kind of um violation of sexual stereotypes in other cultural situations they're like oh that's trans so like hijras mushas whatever they're like oh those are trans people and it's like no they're not it's you're they're like missionaries who see who see like they the the story of the bible everywhere or they're or they're like oh my god that story they're talking about must be like the flood or it must be their version of the tower of babel or or that they that they think like we know what the one true faith is and so we know how to interpret everybody else's stuff um which is in itself they say that they're that they're being and they're so imperialist in everything they do and i and that i think say what you will about judith butler i don't think she did that and and so the direction that um and maybe you know maybe the the seeds of that were inevitable in her work maybe the direction that she's taken the side that she's chosen maybe it was there from the start so maybe the people that hated her work from the beginning were right all along but mm -hmm. i i i feel like all of that work could have gone in a different direction in a different there was there were some intellectually interesting things in there so like Foucault I think there's 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 a way you can read Foucault that that he's just a, a, a boy fucking maniac and that's like that's that's all that's there and then there's another aspect of Foucault that's like oh yeah it's actually interesting things to say about medical hegemony and so the fact that that um yeah, and all of these possibilities, how did we, I don't know, I guess at every every historical moment, right, there's these range of roads that that society could go down, that academia could go down, that intellectual life could go on down, that politics have got, could go down. And I feel like for the past 20 years, mostly we've just been making the wrong choices over and over again until we're, we're at a point where politics, academia are, are in this just absurd uh you know cul-de-sac that 
yeah, I don't, I mean, was it inevitable? What is it not inevitable? I don't know, but, but it's definitely, it's bad. The place, <laughs> the place that we're in is bad and we need to get the hell out. Well, you talk to the, the feminists or the trans ideologues about Butler's other work. And like you, I agree. She's done some excellent work. Her work post 9-11, brilliant. Her work on mm -hmm. hate speech, lovely. I have so much in agreement with her. This though was a line she drew and she called recently our crowd fascists. Now, I think that was her blind spot. I think she was made into something not based on what she wrote. I think her first book was, even if it was conceived with some kind of idea towards criticism of gender normativity, which it was, it was co-opted and people ran away with that text and made it into something else. And I think she owes an explanation of that runaway, runaway train, as it were. Uh, she has never written that people should transition their bodies physically. She is going to have a fallout that goes way beyond her words if she does not shore up some of the misuse of her words, misuse of what she has never said. So there's that. Right, so she's embraced, she's embraced her own caricature in this way that you think, well, I mean, you know, it's your life, do what you want, but, but I don't, why would you, why, why would you do that? That's, it's, um, it's, it's surprising and disappointing to see because I think, oh, you're, you're smart enough that you could have gone another way. Yeah. So I, and I don't know, maybe, you know, I've, I've been talking a lot about 9-11, maybe the bad moment, I think for feminism, some of the bad splits happened earlier. I think there was, there were people, you know, Donna Haraway, I'm sure oh, she's yes, somebody yes. you're familiar with. She's somebody who is, I think, part of this really interesting feminist ferment in the 1970s. And I, I think, you know, she, she went down a road that at this point is, is she still calls herself a feminist, but I would say almost all of her writing is used for entirely anti-feminist purposes. Like maybe the cyborg was, sort of an interesting figure when she first wrote about it in the early 80s. But now the figure of the cyborg is is totally embraced as like, this is why surrogacy, I don't, that stupid book, full surrogacy now. Like, this is why surrogacy is amazing. We need to destroy motherhood. I mean, all of this stuff that you think, I, I did you see where this was headed? I have you just kind of step by step made a series of small bad choices until or or were you kind of or were you kind of a malevolent figure all along right was was donna haraway like ha ha the long game <laughs> is 40 years from now i'm gonna have totally mined feminism from the inside and i'll start like setting off the explosives or was it a series of i mean i i do think there's my personal feeling is there's a series, there's always more rewards on the anti-feminist side than on the feminist side. So you make a small, little small, you know, you get this little, because she's been very academically successful, right? So you get a little small reward and you keep making, there's these tiny splits, right? And you keep making the less feminist choice until eventually you've ended up in a place that is you know, totally anti-feminist, but I don't, I'm not sure that's the road she set down on. And then I think somebody like Sheila Jeffries is really interesting because I think Sheila Jeffries is, is, 
you know, widely respected, widely read, um, has published a ton, but I think she, whenever those splits were offered to her, she always made the feminist choice and as widely read as she is in terms of her academic trajectory, she's not, she's not like an, an academic darling the way somebody like Donna Haraway is. Those terrible front holders, what are we going to do with them? I think it all comes down <laughs> to the fact that, and this going back to stock, no one should be faced with threats. No one should have those smoke bombs, which are obviously symbolic of real bombs. Well, I mean, at the same time, I can't, I honestly can't say not no one, because I, I know I have to, I just can't be a hypocrite. I know if students were standing in front of John Yu's office door and setting off smoke bombs, I'd be like, go students. So I'm not sure that I agree that no one should face these things. I just think when we think about this moment in time, the fact that student energies are going into setting off their smoke bombs in front of the office of, of a woman professor who says, hey, biological sex kind of matters. And, and John Yu, who actually wrote a memo that, that wasn't just a hypothetical justification of torture, that actually resulted in the, in the, in the grotesque torture of human beings. You know, for he, he, I don't know if he bikes, but let's imagine he lives in Berkeley, the weather's <laughs> nice. He bikes back and forth from his office every day, totally unmolested right, right, by anyone. Right. And I think, okay, right there, that is messed up. Well, it is. <laughs> there is something. It is. I agree. Wrong. Although, yeah, I would tell students if I saw them letting off smoke bombs to use the model from, let's say, the protests of the hijos in Argentina with the escraches and get a Mercedes Sosa drum and start banging it. Show photos of the men he tortured. Get a projector. Project it on his home wall. Do something like that. Like I would always say, let's not mm -hmm. do anything that could come back on you and, and be said in the right-wing press, you tried to blow him up. That's what my second brain would be thinking. And and so, you know, my whole shtick with this, this uh, response to Kathleen Stock being so harassed and having been told to get private security guards, her university came out in support, but too little too late in a way. There was a time to support her when this started, because this wasn't the first time she was harassed. And no one blames her mm -hmm, for leaving. Mm -hmm. At the same time, people like Sheila Jeffries or Julia Long, they are seen as radical. So last night, I, I haven't had time to go on social media lately, but I did see someone, can't say who, because I don't know who they are, said, oh, Julia Long, she's done this. It's so unkind. And there's a video of Julia Long singing. Now, I don't even know what it was about, but I do know that Julia likes to sing songs and she will call out the trans movement for the men that they are. So I imagine it was one of her songs saying that a trans person was a man. And she has a song that she sings right. that is actually that. So I'm wondering, wait, these are gender critical feminists laying into her because she's saying that a trans a man who identifies as a as a woman, what Julia Long has also said is a man who insists that women call him a woman or else, because that's the thing that we're missing in the media. The media likes to say transgender woman. She's the first woman who was appointed to. But wait, no, these are men. And so going back to the whole stock being the nice feminist, I'm sure she's a kind person IRL. I have never met her. We have exchanged emails. 
She seems like a very intelligent woman. She has been the most courteous on that front in, let's just say, the Brighton, Sussex area, well, Brighton and her University of Sussex. And I have to wonder why it really matters. I mean, I thought part of the lesson that we were learning from this nonsense was being nice is something we should be pushing against. Not that we should be mean, but the default to not being nice is not being mean. That's the problem. We can be assertive like men. We can say, but you're a man. I just did it on Twitter. I'll wait to see if my account's going to be blocked again or something. But I think we have to push back to speaking frankly. So this erupted in a, dis a debate over, is it so that there was a question at this conference and Julia Long asked, why are you saying that there are radical trans activists? It's all radical. There is no reasonable trans activism because it's all pushing a lie. And then later people said, oh, but Julia hurt so-and-so trans man's feelings. Why is this going on that we can't even get our shit together to just, and it's not about policing language as Julia was accused of doing, it's about why are women afraid of just saying that men are out there? Well, you know, because, I mean, I think, I think you, you've, you hit on it, right? The, the most, the most devastating thing is when women just name what's actually happening. I mean, this is the thing that, that is, is, is always terrifying to misogynist systems because if if women just name what's happening for what it is there's there's nothing more kind of devastating and threatening and so that's why i think you know julia long is is really courageous i i really appreciate her and she's not she's not being rude she's just she's just naming things as they are and just naming things as they are is is always the most scary thing you can do to an oppressive ideology because it tries to convince you that what's happening is not what's happening and so if you just sort of say no what's what's actually happening is and i'm just going to name what's happening um that's that's the most terrifying and so that's why you know julie and and i it also and I'm not, I'm, I'm not, when I'm saying this, I'm not criticizing Kathleen Stock. I think people can choose to conduct themselves however they wish. But it's interesting to watch the amount of praise that is heaped on her for being polite. I mean, and I, 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 I'm really, I feel like this is going to be heard as I'm, I'm criticizing, and I'm really, I'm really not. I'm 100% behind her. But I think that it's interesting to watch the larger world is like, oh, women who are sort of polite and accommodating, like we, we really, those, those are the women that, and we're always going to name that in the sort of list because what people should be defending, the grounds on which they should be defending Kathleen Stock is not that she's so polite and so nice. It's that, and I, it's not even academic freedom because it's not, it's not what she's saying is not I'm, I'm sure her book is very smart so i'm not i'm not i'm not casting aspersions on her book but it's not rocket science that you have to be a pointy-headed professor to know that lesbians don't have penises like that you yeah. don't have yeah. to have gone through 10 years of school that's not a special thing that like oh you have academic freedom so you're allowed to make this sort of peculiar and abstruse point about how lesbians don't have penises everybody is i mean that's just a plain fact in the world so 
so Julia Long just sort of um so it's it's interesting how threat how 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 supposedly threatening people describe her as being like oh she's rude she's awful she's mean she's hurting people and she's this very nice very sensible woman who's just naming plain facts for what they are and and look at how monstered she is for it look at how scary that is i mean if that doesn't this whole process at the beginning of it i never would have called myself a radical feminist because i would i would have felt like oh gosh little milk toast toast me i'm not a radical feminist but the more you watch this stuff you think holy crap if i didn't believe what the rad fem said before i believe it now because i'm i'm watching it made manifest every day that this this very um nice plain spoken woman because she says, hey, that's a man. <laughs> She's in, I mean, it's a combination of like scary, infuriating, ridiculous. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now back to our show. It's the movement that I find interesting, even anthropologically speaking, because I look at the way in which these women come together, they band together on the internet to support, rightfully so, women like Kathleen, there's many others. I've had many mm -hmm. of them on the show. Mm -hmm. My God, I mean, it, no one should be fired for stating an opinion, first of all, even if that opinion happened to be wrong. God knows, we've seen lots of that. You don't see people getting fired from their jobs because they think the, there was a Wuhan leak. You know, they read many reports and their confirmation uh, of their beliefs is that there was a leak in the Wuhan lab. Of course, people wouldn't be fired for that, but people mm -hmm. are losing their jobs for saying that sex is anatomical. Let's even begin with that. So I have a problem watching the fact that we were all outraged and I was horrified for what happened to Kathleen. I, it took me a few days to muster up the mental clarity to write because there are days that i just cannot write about this because the only thing i will write is fuck off i could just fill my page with fuck offs right it's so <laughs> ridiculous that we are put in this position like i thought wasn't this left in the middle ages when women were left at home well don't i continually feel like i understand prior ages now that when you read about them you think oh how did they convince themselves that somebody was a witch or or i think a lot about religious wars like people being burned at the stake right because they had a slight you know they thought the holy ghost was i was either tripartite or not tripartite or whatever and you're like oh my god how could people have gotten so exercised about <laughs> and and now i feel like, like oh i i I understand it because this, when you get this kind of sort of frenzy whipped up, it doesn't, it's not a medieval mindset. It's something that is human beings are, are unfortunately um, universally cross-culturally trans-historically, they seem prey to falling into these frenzies. And I, to, to um, the other thing about these discussions about, oh, academic freedom, they kind of bug me because as I'm sure you know, anybody who has feminist friends who are not academics, I think it's really dangerous when we say, oh, Kathleen Stock has academic freedom to say 
lesbians don't have penises because like well she's in this special place where you can make you know really far out there assertions because who knows the science eventually might confirm that perhaps lesbians don't have penises and and maybe she's just like ahead of the uh, you know ahead of the advances in the field i think it's really dangerous when we defend that on the grounds of academic freedom because I know women who, who are not academics who've been fired from their jobs for saying stuff like that. I, I know women who are afraid to say stuff like that because they're afraid of being fired from their jobs and they don't have academic freedom. So if we say, oh, this is a special weird thing that academics are allowed to say, I think, oh, we, we really shouldn't go down that road. We have to say, saying lesbians don't have penises is a, is a thing that any woman should be able to say without fear of retaliation of any kind because it's true and and it's the the kind of uh, the limitations on women's speech generally women's ability to name what's happening to them women's ability to name reality i oh we have to fight against it so hard because you know those signs that, that went up in the oxford bathrooms that were like if you see someone in the bathroom who doesn't look like they in the women's room who doesn't look like they belong here like just mind your own business it was a definitely a lesson to women like don't even try to speak up and i think and, and then people say, oh, if we have bathroom rules, that means we have to have general inspections at the bathroom door. And I think nobody needs any general inspections, but we do need to preserve the right of women to be able to go and say, I think there's a man in the women's bathroom and to be able to expect that the institution where that bathroom is housed, if it's a restaurant, if it's a gym, that they'll say, oh my goodness, we're, we're, we have your back. Like we're, we're going to keep that safe. Like women have to be able to name that. They have to be able to expect that society is going to say, we agree. We're going to keep that safe space, that space safe for you. And, and the idea that, oh, you know, I, I do think there is, um, that in, in the contemporary era that, that could mean that there's going to be some very uncomfortable situations for trans identified women, right? So for, for women who have taken testosterone and have beards and they walk into the women's bathroom and, you know, maybe women sort of freak out. I, you know, I do think there's gonna be, there's gonna be some conflicts, right? But I, I think that where, where we have to come down when conflicts happen is that women always have the right to, express discomfort if they think a man is in their intimate space and they have the right to go and seek help if they think a man is in their intimate space. Those two things where, where conflicts arise, the resolution cannot be shut up and mind your own business. Like you, you just, just don't avert your eyes or like, you know, educate yourself about your transphobia. The, 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 the conflicts cannot be resolved in that way. The conflicts have to be resolved of, on the side of women always have the right to, to if they think that there's a, a danger, they can name that danger and they can expect society to back them up. And if, you know, if it turns out it's a misunderstanding. And I think, I honestly think most of the time it would resolve itself. I think if, if kind of a, a small person with a beard is in the women's and you look and you're like, oh, it's probably, it's probably a trans identified woman, right? It's totally fine. But if it's somebody six feet tall wearing like sparkly Hello Kitty mini skirts, who's obviously got a fetish, I, 
you have to be, you know, it's a man. You have to be able to say, that's a man and I'm going to go and I'm going to go get help and I'm going to be able to expect that help will be there for me to get this, to get this six foot creep in a Hello Kitty sparkle outfit out of the women's bathroom. So that's very precise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the thing though, going back to the theaters of what we're seeing here, because, you know, you you were talking about images and, and historical atrocities that our governments have, you and I are now binational to the same two countries, that our governments have, have historically enacted the US far more than Canada, although more recently Canada's been getting in on the game. Uh, I, I have to wonder then why, again, to repeat what you said, this is not the fault of Kathleen Stock, but people on Twitter will support her far more in the injustice, because it is an injustice, what has happened to her, And then Julia Long last night, I'm watching those same people try to judge her and come down on her because she's calling a man a man. And that's a disconnect that needs to stop. And the disagreement from that conference that was about two weeks ago, it was the LGB Alliance conference where she addressed this with two of the speakers. And the response that she got, it led to two massive videos, one which completely made fun of one of the speakers because it was very clear that the major response was, we have no answer to this. We're just going to derail and accuse you of wanting to run down the road and call trans women men. Well, that's not what Julia Long was saying. And I think it's a huge problem within what people call the GC movement, but I'd say, as I said today earlier on social media, it's not just a GC movement. You could be Joe the plumber, to use that expression from Sarah Palin, you could be Joe the plumber, wake up, read all about this madness, and say, uh, men have a penis and testicles, women do not, end of subject. You could be the most misogynist man and state that because you have a modicum of sixth grade biology education or high school or beyond. How is it that we are debating that the earth is not flat? You know, everyone laughed at Rachel Dolezal. She didn't get very far at all with that shtick she tried to pull. No one was having it. Then Adolf Reeb infamously wrote that piece. I spoke about it at the University of Brighton a few months after it came out. And this was my first academic presentation of this. Right. Dealing with the fact that one trans is good and one trans is bad. And he talks about this dichotomy and it's a real mm-hmm, moral mm-hmm. and ethical problem for our age. We're living in the richest countries on the planet. Poverty has increased, not decreased over my lifetime. The haves and have nots, more wider, they're wider apart than ever. The US with Obama and going back to the way that things look, because I was thinking of the famous photo from Vietnam that really stuck with Americans, that child that had been napalmed. That is what ended the Vietnam War. The coffin picture of that photographer who took the US military coffins, and it was a huge airstrip. It was shown several dozen, if not a hundred or plus coffins in these photos. And she lost her job over this. And we're unable to take the material reality of death, which is part of our primal instincts as humans, that's pushed into, that's pushed into the recesses entirely. 
and now we're selling penis is lesbian. It's insane. So why is it that the people saying that people like Kathleen Stock should not be bullied into having to leave their jobs? Others like Maura, Maya Forsyter, who was actually not renewed her contract for saying something similar mm -hmm. to Kathleen Stock, that sex is real. Why is the nice feminist being more supported in the Twitter mobs out there rather than the likes of Julia Long, who's saying, well, no, these are men. And there is no radical trans activism because it's all really insane. We should stop calling men women. Right. And and she's and she's and Julia Long, you know, that that in her piece, um, a true transition, I think it yeah. was called, where she talks about to the extent that you accept these men who say they're women, you create a safe that's uh, you create a space that's unsafe, for example, for trans widows, because you're sort of taking the side of the husband over the side of the wife. I mean, I, it's it's not it's actually not kind. It's a choice about who you're going to be kind to. So you're going to be kind to these men, and you're going to create a space that probably makes trans widows very uncomfortable and and feels like a space that they're not safe in so you're but i i think the bigger issue is just it seems like we're living in an era that um the the powers that be want to train us to be frightened and uncomfortable about just naming reality and and i and i think this i think this is um we see it very clearly in in the case of gender identity ideology but i think it goes across the board and i think there's a lot of realities that they've been quite successful that we're not naming at all when you're talking about um canada's role in imperialism you know justin trudeau is supposedly the most anti-racist feminist inclusive wonderful little fuzzy bunny that ever that ever hopped across the prime minister's desk you know, his under his administration, the Canadian military were going to sell a bunch of tanks to the Saudis, which of course they were just going to use to in their campaign of killing Yemeni. I mean, that the whole the whole catastrophe in Yemen, the starvation, the killing. I mean, that was never front page news anywhere. So there's all these realities that we've we've ceased naming at all. So and I and that I think is just so when you think about the when I think about Paul, the left and academia of 20 years ago, 40 years ago, there were tons of academics and leftists who were who were yowling about imperialism all the time, you know, there's people worried about the Sandinistas worried about Vietnam and and things like I don't know, you know, my, and I, I have to, I don't want to be too high and mighty. Like I have to, it's not like I was organizing protests about what was going on in Yemen, but there's, there's these vast swaths of actually existing horrible reality that we never, ever speak of. And I, I just, I just think this, 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 these habits of mind and this training to not to not speak of 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 tons of actually existing situations, it, it's it's pervasive, and I do think we have to push against it. That Julia Long is not being mean; she's she's just describing. I don't know. She's she's just describing plain facts, and it, and it, there is this whole like. I mean, I do think there's this weird 
there's this weird, um, I think many people would experience it as rude and unkind if the next time you made the point about how George W. Bush has been rehabilitated, that if he was on one of these like jokey talk shows and he's telling us about his paintings and he's doing his little crinkly eyed uh -huh. smiles, if somebody would, was to say, hey, you know, a, a lot of children were killed during your presidency or like a lot of human beings were tortured, people would experience that as, oh my God, like, it's like you farted at a dinner party, right. you know, you, how could you do such a thing? And, and I, I don't know. I, I, I like, I like kindness. I like politeness, but the disciplinary uses of politeness and kindness are, are really kind of out of control right now. Well, there's also the fact, if you remember Tommy Frank's infamous statement, we don't do body counts. Of course, he was referring to Iraqis and Afghanis. And the numbers of those who've been killed directly by war and violence in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and Pakistan, at the most conservative is 800,000. And that's a conservative number. It's widely believed to be far more than that. And yeah, like more than a million human beings. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the West, which has is like going through these orgiastic rituals of of oh the sins of the past and how terrible and now we're all anti-colonial and anti-racist and and at these events they never fucking mention the 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 million dead within recent memory it's 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 some it's something really terrible is at work in in our in our society i would have to maintain that this is some kind of mass experimentation how far can we get people to deny reality if you can get society mm -hmm. and they have mm -hmm. successfully gotten a lot of people on board on the pe female penis vote if you can get people to parrot that job done because you just said it no one's talking about the travesty of syria seriously People have no idea what has mm -hmm. gone on there because they're focusing on pronoun badges and everyone's looking at their belly buttons in the US, Canada, the Anglophone countries, I have to say it in the West, have had this pushed so far up people's rear ends. People are not pushing back. That's shocking. All it took to get people angry about, do you remember that in the 80s, the parent advisory label? It took Al Gore's oh, wife right. to try and push that, and you had people like Frank Zappa pushing back. Where was John Stewart a few weeks ago, pre 9-11 memory? Where was he? Because I know he's on our side. I've seen a few things that he has said about the wretched treatment of people overseas by our governments, but that, you know, he steps away from it too. I want to see, I don't want to see Stephen Colbert make fun of anti-COVID believers or whatever. I want to see why in the mm -hmm. hell mm -hmm. we've had this whole media operation to cleanse George Bush's vile human rights record. And more so, let's go further. Obama, I've had fights with a very good friend of mine on my Facebook wall because she really thought Obama was better than Bush. And I'm like, read the numbers, the drone wars. I mean, Donald Trump killed fewer people than George W. Bush and Obama. Obama expanded drone warfare. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it's really true. Like, like it's, it's interesting how, how monster 
Donald Trump is, and it seems like part of the monstering is that he failed, he failed in what is now the essential task of a US president is which is to kill, you know, he didn't kill enough overseas brown people if he had killed more overseas brown people his his reputation would probably be be better and I, you know, I, 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 it felt, and I, it did feel, I remember when, when Barack Obama was elected for the first time, I, I was watching the, the, what was this, and like some, some field in Chicago, and I was feeling really emotional, and then they panned to Jesse Jackson's face, and Jesse Jackson's crying, and then I started crying. I mean, it really did feel like, oh my God, like history is now, like the arc of history has really, it actually has been towards justice. Like it's really happening within my lifetime. And holy crap, <laughs> like that, the degree to which that, the promise of that moment has gone, not just unrealized, the direction we've gone in. Yeah, I don't know. I, I keep jumping around in time that it's like, what is, what is, what is the, what is the moment when it all when it all went to hell? I don't. Maybe there wasn't just one moment. Maybe there's a series of tiny choices. But, but the place, the place we are now, we we need we need to get out of it. That's for sure. Yes, and and certainly the resistance to the fictions we're being spoon fed. It's almost as if it's a Truman Show, but worse. Mm -hmm. People watch the Truman Show and they think that's really right, weird. That right. would never happen. We're living the Truman Show. Right. And at least that was only one guy, right? Where yeah, in, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that yeah, they were absolutely. messing with his head. Yeah. Well, you wrote in your article, Transit Theology and the New Ptolemism in the Academy. You discussed being dismissed by the then Dean of Arts, Leslie Cormack, from your position as undergraduate programs chair in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alberta. I remember when this happened. This occurred as a response to student objections to your gender critical feminist views. What did that discussion look like when you were told about this? Or did you just get an email? No, I actually, you know, it was interesting. It was, I had discussions with my department chair first. And I, I have to say on, you know, to their credit, both my department chair and the dean, when they called me and I said I wanted to record the conversations and they, and they allowed me to record the conversation. So in the first conversation with my chair, I, th I think she was really hoping that the upshot would be that I would resign so that she would sort of say like, look, this is causing a lot of issues and students are, are upset and, and kind of like, you know, not directly asking me to resign, but the direction of the conversation being, it would be better if you, and, and I, I sort of said, you know, you guys can fire me, but I, I, I want to see the letter explaining the firing because I kind of knew they couldn't, they couldn't put in writing. Although, you know, she described to me like students have been coming and talking about these signs that you have on your office door and they, um, they, they're really upset about it. And also, I know I'd, if you, I had had a letter in the local newspaper, I'd, I'd published a couple of things on like feminist current places. So if you did some research on me, you could definitely see that I was, I was gender critical feminist. So the upshot of that conversation is I said, well, look, I'm not resigning. Um, but of course you guys have the power to fire me. So then I got called in to see the Dean 
and I, I said, look, I'm going to audio record the conversation and that, that conversation, she, she was in a funny way, sympathetic. She actually didn't, when I said the word turf, she was like, what's a turf. And then she said, oh, you know, we have these issues a lot, like students, um, kind of getting really riled up. And again, I said, look, I'm not, I'm not going to resign, but if you, if you feel you need to fire me, go ahead. I just, you know, write me a letter. But in the end, what the university refused to ever do because they couldn't is to put in writing why they dismissed me. So they just said, you're not effective in the role. But of course, because I had these audio recorded conversations, I, you know, I know exactly why they dismissed me, right? It was described to me at length in both of these audio recorded conversations. But the, the official position of the university is, I, I was dis there was no particular reason for which I was dismissed because they couldn't say, I mean, they are a university, they know what academic freedom is. So they couldn't say, hey, you have points of view students don't like, and, and we've, but I, I think in general, and I don't wanna, I don't wanna blame too much my chair and that Dean, I think really the person behind it was the, our Dean of Students, Andre Kostopoulos. And I, I think that the one of the justifications for the huge salaries they earn in those administrative roles are this idea of like we are making the university a more socially just place so he was he was apparently really soliciting complaints from students so not just like really wanted students to come in and put down in writing all the bad things i had done and interestingly students were very unwilling to do that i think because at the end of the day, they, they, there was two things. I think they didn't want to lie. So they couldn't make up, like no one wanted to put their name on a statement that said like, oh, she tried to kick me in the head or whatever, like something that would actually be actionable. But they also couldn't understand because of the messaging the university gives them is like, how is it possible that, like, what do you mean we have to put our names down and sign and sign on a piece of paper? like? The messaging of the university to us is a lady who thinks bad things like she gets the axe right away right <laughs> like because the messaging of the university is like we're on the side of equity diversity and inclusion and and so i think students were genuinely puzzled how is it not enough for us to just tell you we don't like her and and i th and i think so i think there was some behind the scenes stuff where the university was trying to figure out like so then they, I think they then came up with a strategy of like, let's invite her in and try to explain to her why she should resign. And then I just wouldn't um, because they couldn't get, they couldn't get the kind of formal complaints that they would need to make a formal process because I hadn't, I hadn't done anything actually actionable. You know, I hadn't written on the top of somebody's paper, like you get an F because you think lesbians have penises or ha ha ha, I'm going to make fun of you to your face or any, you know, the kinds of things that would actually, so all I had done was, was express the wrong views and, and you really can't fire people at universities for expressing the wrong views. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, that it wasn't, it was a stressful experience because I thought, I thought, well, you know, if, if you comb through anybody's life, maybe they will be able to find something that they can fire me for. I mean, I didn't, there was nothing in particular that I could think of, but I thought God only knows what kind of, you know, I was already at that point, a pretty lively commentator on Spinster, which is like Twitter for Radfem. So I was like, 
I don't think I've said anything that be counted as hate speech, but they definitely could find something on Spinster as a whole that they could say, and then they could say like, look, she's on this website at which hate speech is expressed. But I, I, I think that maybe the reason they didn't do that is it's like the, I don't know, like the, the, the kind of comedy scene where you start pulling on a thread and then, and then suddenly you've pulled up or like you've got your fishing line and you think you've got a big fish and it turns out you have like, I don't know, a sunken battleship or something. I think they were, once they started pulling on that line, it was like, oh no, if, if we start to publicize, if we go after for, for, for that, we'd have to publicize like the existence of Spencer. Um, people might go and look at Spencer. <laughs> they might start to think, oh wait, like these ladies really have a point. So I think at that point they were like, ah, we just, I, I think they just wanted the whole thing to go quiet again. You know, it was like, oh, we've, we've dismissed her. And, and the situation right now is my faculty union, I would say rather unwillingly is pursuing a grievance on my behalf, almost because they couldn't not, they did their best. They tried to get some external legal advice that was like, oh no, she's, you know, she's just been subject. The external legal advice said, because I think my faculty union didn't want to defend this case. They're, they're as woke as everybody else. The external legal advice said, oh, this professor shouldn't, like, what, who does she think she is? Like, she, she can't expect that she's not going to be subjected to discipline. And so then my faculty union said, well, look, this external legal advice says you're, you're, you don't have a chance in your case. And I wrote back and I said, listen, um, I wasn't subjected to discipline. Like I would have welcomed a disciplinary hearing, but the university actually didn't pursue formal discipline against me. So I'm not saying don't discipline me. I'm saying, yes, please discipline me, hold a hearing and, and, and discuss all the students that I turned into newts and parade them before me because it, none of those, and then they, they had to say like, oh fuck, that's, you know, sorry, I keep using bad words. Um, they had to say, oh crap, that's true. We, they, you were not subjected to formal discipline. And I also think my, I mean, I think everybody in this situation is, they know, they know what they're doing isn't right. So I think that's why the university's initial position was, hopefully we can just make her resign and then we can get rid of her, but we don't have to, like, we know it wouldn't be right to fire her, but then it was like, oh no, we do have to fire her. And I think my faculty union also was like, oh, we don't really want to defend this case, but we kind of have to. One of the other things that I think made a difference is I, I asked them for an update because I said I was going to I've been invited to talk about it at the Women's Human Rights Campaign webinar. And I think they just, they were like, oh gosh, is this going to become public? Like, are we going to look bad? Oh, okay, we'll, uh, we'll pursue your discipline. Like, we'll pursue your grievance. Okay, we have to pursue your grievance. So, so there's a lot of reluctance. And it's interesting, there's from my colleagues, there's um, some people have expressed private support um but there's there's kind of a reluctance i don't know there's kind of a lot of sort of shame-faced looking at the ground like on the one hand we think you're terrible like officially we think you're terrible but i think a lot of people most closely involved in this kind of know that what they've done isn't isn't quite right you have pointed out some of the things I've been thinking over the last several years that we maybe ought not to be focusing only on people in academia because ironically, even though Kathleen Stock left the University of Sussex, she 
could have stayed and fought and won, although if I were her, I wouldn't have had it in me either, uh, because mm -hmm. these are long battles. And as many people know, with legal battles, it's a choice. You, you can have your life or you can become the legal battle. And I don't blame her for having made that choice at all. At the mm -hmm. same time, one of the people I've interviewed on the show, Renee Gerlich, was telling me how her employment, as someone who was a clerk in an art store, minimum wage was put into peril. And she's a feminist writer as well. She had no job security. And we hear very little about women from the working classes. I agree with you. And I think this is a huge part of the problem within the mm -hmm. gender critical movement. I agree with you totally. I think the really awful cases are the ones we never hear about. So I, I know a woman here in Canada who was, because it became public that she was involved in this kind of activism, she lost her job. She's now cleaning hotel rooms. Now that's, that's noble work, but um, it's not the work that she would have been doing had she not been identified as, as a feminist by the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, which is this monstrous misogynist organization. But the, the attack, the threat to working class women, because the, what, what cases like Kathleen Stocks or mine serve as is an object lesson. And so it really bothers me when they're talked about in terms of, of academic freedom, because it serves as an object lesson to everybody who doesn't have active academic freedom, which is Kathleen Lowry still has her job because she has tenure. And that is the only reason I still have my job. But let this be a lesson to the rest of you. Say that lesbians never have penises and you're going to get the ax. And I know women who've gotten the ax. I also, you know, I'm, I'm one of, because I'm, I also get all the messages from students who are frightened to say what they actually think in class, who with the research projects they're not pursuing because they don't have tenure and they know it will come down on their heads if, if they take this position. So the, like somebody like Kathleen Stock or, or me or um, the woman in Australia whose name is escaping me right now who's who's been subject like we're the tip of the Holly iceberg. The ice yes that's her thank you the iceberg is you know what do you think every woman who works for the university of alberta who works for the physical plant or who who is a administrative clerk in the registrar's office what did they learn from my case they learned from my case if you share kathleen lowry's views do not make a peep because the only reason she's not out on her butt is because she has tenure. Do you have tenure? No, you would be out on your butt in two seconds. And the university made no bones about um, when they would be interviewed about it, they would say, oh, she has tenure and she's still free to research whatever she wants. I mean, they were very careful to talk about how um, tenure protected me. And that's wonderful in one sense, but that's a lesson to every other person <laughs> who hears about this, like, oh, it's going to come for you. Like, if if you dare to say any of this, it's going to come for you. And I think, and those women, they their cases don't get publicized. They don't appear in the media. And in a way, they don't want to appear in the media because right. their only hope of employment is to continue to lay low. Because, you know, these 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 activists will pursue you to the ends of the earth, right? So if you eventually were like washing dishes in the back of a cafe, 
they would have a protest out in front like this cafe employs a transphobe and so they they really want you they want your life destroyed and and for people and they have destroyed people's lives and we we haven't heard about those cases because those women the last thing they want is more publicity um so it's 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 a it's it's such a it's it's such a um vindictive misogynist movement and and yeah and, and it's hard to know it's hard to know how to publicize that because the stories that would really tug at people's heartstrings and let them know how awful this is those women are rightly afraid to have their stories told um yeah and actually you know i meant to write something about this and i really should write something about this because because I can without getting fired, but but um, how much how much focusing on um, I mean, of course, we should focus on Kathleen Stock. It's terrible what's happened to her, but there's a lesson that's that's being transmitted to all women who don't have safe positions by that kind of story, and it's and it's a very scary lesson, and I think we need to be paying more attention to that very scary lesson and and, and pushing back against it. Thank you.